This is the Monday, February 22nd, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and you're listening to The History Author Show on iHeartRadio. You can also catch us on iTunes, Spreaker, Player FM, TuneIn Radio, and many other personal audio outlets. You can also tune us in on many new model car stereos, where you can listen to iHeartRadio, just like you listen to any other radio, right there in the dashboard. Of course, today, we're not driving a car, but a time machine. And we're roaring back to the summer of 1832, and America at war. It's not a conflict over land, but over the financial system of the young republic. It's a domestic fight, brother against brother. Our guide on this journey is Paul Cahan, and his book is The Bank War, Andrew Jackson, Nicholas Biddle, and the Fight for American Finance. Dr. Cahan holds a Ph.D. in U.S. History from Temple University and an M.A. in Modern American History and Literature, as well as B.A.s in History and English. He's also the author of two books on Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary and another titled The Homestead Strike. Labor, Violence, and American History, Critical Moments in American Industry. You can learn more about today's guest at paulkahan.com or follow him on Twitter at paul underscore kahan. That name is spelled K-A-H-A-N. Okay, now that we've balanced our checkbook, so to speak, let's go back in time and meet Paul Kahan, where we'll sign up for The Bank War. I'm on the line with Paul Cahan, author of The Bank War, Andrew Jackson, Nicholas Biddle, and The Fight for American Finance. Thank you so much for making the time to talk today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, I have a great opportunity here with you as my guest because you are a professor, so you're able to explain just what these national banks were in the early days of the Republic in a way that hopefully it's clear to even the layman, and they'll understand kind of what did a bank do? What did this bank, the second bank of the United States that's at the center of the bank war do for the average people? What was its job? Sure. And let me just tell you, I, I'm sure that many of your uh, listeners are probably, you know, trembling in fear that there's going to be, you know, economics equations and, and the Laffler curve. And the book really isn't about any of that stuff. What this is really a story about is a good old fashioned American political fight that has a smattering of economics. But to answer your question more directly, when the United States is founded as the United States, when Madison and company write the Constitution, one of the major issues facing the country is this debt lingering from the revolution. And so there are a bunch of different arguments for what we should do about it. how are we going to handle that? 
And to his credit, Alexander Hamilton comes up with this really ingenious plan that has multiple steps, but one of which is the creation of a central bank that's really there to pay down the national debt and to establish the country's credit. And it's incredibly controversial. It is in many ways the defining political fight of Washington's presidency. And in many ways, it's a political fight that we're still having. But basically, a central bank is there to pay a country's bills. It's there to collect revenue in the form of taxes or tariffs, and it's there to pay vendors, pay service people. It's also there to create a currency. You know, none of us have any problem getting on a plane and flying from one end of the country to the other. We know the dollar bills in our pocket will have exactly the same value in San Francisco as they do in New York. And that's really a credit to a central bank that you have a currency that is accepted at face value around the country. So these are a few of the things the central bank does. For all of those positive things, there are, of course, some drawbacks, and that gets us into the politics of the bank war. That's really something that we take for granted. So many things from the founding, you ask people and say, well, do you realize you'd go to New Jersey and that money would be worthless that you had from New York and trading it back and forth? You had states printing their own money. So when you read history, it seems very self-evident what Alexander Hamilton is talking about and how that lays the groundwork here for the Second Bank of the United States. It's in the bank war. But it wasn't that self-evident to people because they were suspicious of it. Oh, sure. And this becomes, as you said, something we can relate to with no math. And I will promise people right here and now that there will be no math quiz after this episode. But <laughs> it really is a personal confrontation. And that's something we can relate to, especially when you have Jackson and you have his really intense democratic idealism. And then you have Biddle who has this faith in sort of the technocrats and the competence. And we see that fight play out over and over again, like Groundhog Day in our democracy, sort of going back and forth. But narrowly focusing here in the period of the bank war in the early 1830s, explain how their two visions and how these two very different personalities clash. Certainly. Well, you know, one of the things that I think we need to do, and I, it's something I do in the book, is really take it back to the debate between the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians when it comes to the ratification of the Constitution. And, you know, in sort of very, very crude terms, you have these two groups of people, one of whom is saying the Constitution provides a framework that needs to be interpreted, and they put a lot of faith in the necessary and proper clause. And this is an article in the Constitution that says everything that the Constitution says the federal government is able to do, it can do under this clause as long as it's necessary and proper. And so that really becomes the bedrock upon which the Bank of the United States is founded. The Jeffersonians, by contrast, say, no, 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 unless it's explicitly in the Constitution, you can't do it. And you certainly can't charter a bank because nowhere in the Constitution is Congress granted the authority to charter a bank. And so they sort of go back and forth, back and forth, fighting about this. And ultimately, it's the Supreme Court that makes the final decision. Well, I say final, it's, it's never final. But it's ultimately the Supreme Court that gets a hold of this in a court case known as McCullough v. Maryland. And this court case is decided by the legendary Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall, in which he basically argues that Congress does, in fact, have the right 
to charter this bank. Now, as we can see with political issues in our country today, just because the Supreme Court rules something constitutional or unconstitutional, that issue doesn't go away. And that issue continues to fester under the surface until Jackson takes it on during his presidency. And so, you know, one of the things that I really want to drive home is the bank war is about a specific fight that happens during Jackson's presidency, but it's about a larger philosophical debate that's been going on at least since the time of Hamilton and Jefferson. And if you know what you're looking for, you can hear echoes of it in our political system today, whether it's listening to Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, Rand Paul, all of these guys in some way, shape or form are dancing around the issues at work in the bank war. And as you say that about Jackson sort of just being the head of this particular phase or chapter or battle in this ongoing war over monetary policy and what the money in our pocket is going to be worth, I'm thinking he's a general for it at this point. And obviously he was a general, a real military general. So he comes at it with just this intense fire that he has about pretty much everything. And as I was reading the bank war, there are many times that I laughed, which you might not expect. I wondered if people on the A train were suspicious of me because why is <laughs> they wondered if I was just using the cover of the book, the dust jacket to make myself look smart. But I was really reading, you know, truly tasteless jokes or something like that because it was funny. And one of the things was you talked about the Jeffersonians fighting against the Hamiltonians, the Federalists that wanted a strong central bank. And Jackson declares himself a Jeffersonian. And you quote there in the bank war, Jefferson saying, no, he's really not one of my guys. He has a terrible temperament and he's just not the right guy to be leading this. And of course, you can't stop it. And I just thought today we hear so many people who will claim the mantle of a past president or anybody dead. I always say it's amazing, isn't it, that dead people always agree with you? But <laughs> Jefferson's alive at this point and Jackson's still saying, no, no, I'm, I'm the heir to you. So just shut up there, you know and died slowly on July 4th uh, in Monticello because I'm the guy. And Jackson, once he gets a hold of something and he has all these resentments and all these frustrations and all this anger about the bank, everything is so personal with him, isn't it? Oh, good Lord, yes. I heard John Meacham, who wrote a really good biography of Jackson, say in an interview one time, if you were Jackson's friend, you were Jackson's friend for life. But if you ran afoul of him, God help you. Yeah. That's Jackson to a T. I mean... He is this six foot plus white hair standing on and steam coming out of his ears. Maniac might be too strong a word, but <laughs> at times, though, at, at it, times, might, it might have fit. Yeah. And, you know, to a certain extent, he played that role, too. I mean, there are there are instances where, you know, he rants and raves and yells at people for effect. But I mean, this is a man who for 20 or so years carried at least one bullet around in his body from a duel. Yeah. As the bank war is coming to a head, he's in the White House having the Navy surgeons pull this ball out of his back. So he's a really intense, really tough guy. But as you know, he's got these resentment. And in a lot of ways, he is sort of driven by those in a way that I think only Richard Nixon, you know, can really be compared to as a sort of corollary to driven by these resentments, driven by this anger. Yeah, Jackson is worthy of so many books just on his own. Mm -hmm. So it, it really is a perfect person in a way for this because the bank 
is important. The Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve. Yeah, you get someone like Jackson in there, and I think people will pick up the bank war that maybe wouldn't just pick up a book on monetary policy. Well, and I, you know, I a tip of the hat to my publisher. I think they went and found, you know, the the, the best possible image to put on the cover. You know, you have Jackson here beating back a multi-headed dragon in his bedroom slippers while he's choking <laughs> Henry Clay with the belt of his robe. I mean, you know, just looking at this, you're kind of like, what am I looking at? It draws your eye for sure. It does. And they did a fantastic job. And of course, that actually is a political cartoon from the time. It's a lithograph titled Political Quixotism Showing the Consequence of Sleeping in Potent Magic Spectacles, the Diplomatic Hercules Attacking the Political Hydra, 1833. You know, that's one of those other things that I think we don't talk about enough is for as much as this was a continuation of a war that had been going on since Jefferson and Hamilton, this had a very important context in that it was taking place in a public sphere that hadn't existed 40 years before. The rise of cheap printing, the rise of lithography, the growing enfranchisement of voters meant that you had a much larger voting public to talk to and you had much more tools for disseminating your points of view. And so what you end up with is a very large number of political cartoons. And of course, if you want someone to notice what you're saying, the more vicious, the more pugnacious, the more aggressive you could get, the better. And, you know, there are a number of them in the bank war. Probably the most famous is, of course, the picture of Andrew Jackson as King Andrew I. If you want to know what the Whigs were all about in one image, that's pretty much what the Whigs were all about. It's on page 107 in the book. On the border, it says, born to command, had I been consulted, a veto memory. It's a really effective use of the public sphere. And in a lot of ways, that's really what was sort of different and unique about this particular moment when Jackson comes to the presidency. And nice little caricatures there of Martin Van Buren and the like, who we'll get to in a minute, of some of the, the lackeys and the players there, rats on the ship sort of deserting. Mm -hmm. Another thing that occurs to me came to be during the Jacksonian era is we have our first millionaires in the United States. Oh, yeah. So money is being accrued here in a way that it wasn't previously. Yeah. And in addition, you know, it's not just the millionaires. It's also the expansion of corporations. And this is something that, again, we just sort of take for granted. We're surrounded by all of these corporations, most of whom are formed under general incorporation laws, which I promise your listeners is about as wonky as we're going to get here. <laughs> but in this period, if you wanted to form a corporation, you had to go to the state legislature and get them to actually pass a bill in order to let you form this, this corporation. And so by the 1820s, 1830s, what you have is state legislatures being jam-packed with bill after bill after bill after bill for incorporation. And of course, there's bribery, there's back scratching, there's all kinds of things going along to grease the skids of this. And the problem with the corporation is, the corporation is a legal fiction. It's this idea that we're going to create for the purposes of a business, a legal person. That person doesn't actually exist, but they have free speech rights, et cetera, and it's designed to shield the investors in a corporation from legal liability. Well, you can just imagine how Jackson feels about this. You know, some corporation does something that he doesn't like. 
well, whose head does he beat in? Whose I was going to say, who does he damn? Uh, and there's there's no yeah. one. You know, it's this nameless, faceless. It's almost like a Bond villain. You know, in the shadows, it's like Spectre or something. Yeah, there have been a lot of really great books about the Jacksonian era, and recently, what they've begun to emphasize is the out and out paranoia of this period. That you have these economic changes, that things are moving from the local to the regional or even the national. And as that happens, it becomes more and more difficult to get a hold of someone to talk face to face with someone to deal with a person. You're dealing with these corporations, you're dealing with these banks. And when something does go wrong, I mean, we've all had that problem. Imagine, you know, I had to call uh, Verizon earlier in the week. And you sit on hold and you sit on hold and then you finally get a hold of someone and they don't care. They're in Colorado, you know, and you can yell and scream and swear all you want, but it's not going to get you what you want. For someone like Jackson, the ability to yell and scream and swear and throw things was absolutely central. And I think that, you know, looking at the corporations, that was one of his big fears. Who do I yell at? Yeah. Who does he challenge to a duel right. in Jackson's case? Who I mean, that do was I very... shoot? Yeah, right. And that was a very real thing with him. One of the things you were talking there about carrying bullets, he had shattered, I, I guess it was his collarbone, a bone up there in his upper shoulder in one of his duels. And it, over time, if you've had an injury like that, it would push the pieces of bone out through his skin and he'd be out on campaign somewhere in Florida or something. And he would send those to his wife in an envelope. It's like, well, that that's a great gift. I always think she, <laughs> mu- she Rachel must have loved that when she, oh, great, another piece of my husband, you know, and he so he was not a person, as you said, to be trifled with if you were a foe. And I could see where that and also the fact that he, of course, resented and hated the British. So anything that smacked of a more powerful organization, person, corporation, what have you, taking advantage of average people, it it just all plays into it. As you said, it's a psychological study that we have with many of our presidents. And sometimes you say it's interesting if it wasn't playing out across a national stage. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, look, at the end of the day, if you want to understand Andrew Jackson, all you need to do is sit down and read Moby Dick, because Moby Dick is an allegory for the bank war. Mm. Ahab is Andrew Jackson. Melville was a Whig. He wrote the book during the latter stages of the Depression following the Panic of 1837. I heard the book described one time as a confusing revenge fantasy against a cheap source of oil. And that really is Andrew Jackson in a nutshell. You know, it's just this confusing revenge fantasy against these nameless, faceless people that have hurt him in some vague way that he can't quite describe. And the fact that Hamilton based the original Bank of the United States on the Bank of England only adds fuel to that fire. It's automatically suspect. Anytime you can put Jackson in a book, I say do it. <laughs> We're speaking with Paul Cahan, who, as you know, did put Andrew Jackson in his book right there on the cover, Fighting Dragons, as he probably would have liked to envision himself. The book is The Bank War, Andrew Jackson, Nicholas Biddle, and The Fight for American Finance. You can learn more about today's guest at paulcahan.com. Or follow him at Paul underscore Cahan on Twitter. Carl Lane, author of A Nation Wholly Free, The Elimination of the National Debt in the Age of Jackson, says the bank war is, quote, a must read for Jacksonian era scholars and for anyone interested in the historical relationship between American politics and banking, unquote. Especially in election year, that seems like a good sort of juxtaposition. But I wanted to ask just about the writing craft of that 
How did you go about writing a book that would appeal to somebody like your students who's brand new at that and maybe don't have the longest attention span to a scholar who just says, oh, a new Jackson book, I'm, I'm just going to curl right up and read this? Because this is very approachable, this book. It seems like it does have something for everybody in it. Yeah, and I appreciate you saying that. Historians get a really bad rep for being, you know, jargony writers, you know, for not being able to write. And I have to say, my experience, I would say the vast majority of history books that I read, probably four out of five, are very well written. I think that we have not, as a group, done a whole lot in terms of dispelling that myth. But to answer your question more directly, whether I'm writing for scholars or I'm writing for the general public, I always think that clear, concise, focused prose is the way to go. And so the trick is I write the book and then I actually listen to it as an audiobook. I found out how to make my Mac read my books to me, huh. which if you want to talk about creepy, have your Mac sometime <laughs> read your own writing to you. It's, it's very strange. For those of you that were old enough to remember Knight Rider and thinking like, wow, that must be really cool. It sounds nothing like that. <laughs> you know, it sounds like HAL 9000, which is super creepy. But anyway, you develop a much better feel for the writing doing it that way. And for aspiring writers, you know, for really anyone who strings together a couple of words, I highly recommend doing it that way um, because it does help you focus and tighten and really polish your writing. After the financial crisis of 2008, everybody was angry with the Federal Reserve, with banks. And for the Jackson era in the bank war here, the panic of 1819 was something that would have been fresh in people's mind. So explain to people how the current events that we were living through or just lived through helped inspire you to write the bank war. You know, that's a great question. And I tend to take my writing cues from current events. And of course, you have this massive economic collapse in the United States that involves these really, really technical sorts of things, you know, credit derivatives. And for a layperson, it's incredibly difficult to sort of get a handle on all of these things. Uh, I remember sitting with a very well-known professor at the University of Pennsylvania, incredibly smart guy by the name of Mike Katz, who has written a number of, you know, incredibly well-regarded books. He passed away, I guess, two years ago. And he was talking about how the fact, you know, he has a 401k, but he doesn't really understand how it works. And I'm sitting there thinking, good God, if a professor at Penn doesn't understand how his, his 401k works, we're in serious trouble. And what I began to find out as I was looking into that is a lot of that complication is unnecessary. And that the financial industry has really done a poor job of educating the public. Um, and that, you know, kind of brings us back to Nicholas Biddle, who always believed that if the people just understood what he was doing, they would side with him. He always believed that Jackson and Jackson's followers were operating out of ignorance. And that if he could just show them the light, you know, there would be no disagreements. Now, of course, I think Biddle in a lot of ways misread Jackson, but to a certain extent, I do see some sorts of echoes of that. You know, in preparation for our discussion, I was thinking about Charles Wilson, the CEO of GM, who in 1953, while testifying in front of Congress, said that what was good for the country was good for GM and vice versa. And I think that at these upper levels of banking and industry, there is this belief that if you just let us alone, we'll figure this out. We're smart. We're competent. We can figure this out. 
That being said, I also think that we need to keep a very serious eye on these people and, you know, set very clear roles. And so there is that tension that in a lot of ways runs through the bank war, which is fundamentally a debate over democratic accountability and technocratic competence. And I think that the nice thing about Biddle and Jackson is you really get the extremes of that argument. And unfortunately, you see what happens when they stop talking to one another and start talking past one another. Biddle tries at one point in the bank war to go to Jackson and say, I can help you keep one of your campaign promises that was very important to you. And I would say any promise Jackson made, of course, was probably, as we said, he was very intense. But Nicholas Biddle, I don't want him to just be the sort of reflection here of Jackson on your book cover. He really has a role to play in beliefs and he goes to Jackson and he tries to work with him here. And I guess today we would say that sounds like a great idea for compromise. I'll give you something that you want and I'll make my second bank of the United States useful to you. And he thinks, well, that's it. You know, Jackson's going to go along with me now. I've solved it. I brought him over to my side, but it doesn't work that way, does it? Biddle is never able to see it from his side and Jackson's never to see it from his. And the average person here or the citizen of the United States, whoever they were, is caught in the middle. Explain to people what the impact of this war was on the sort of civilian casualties, the people who are just trying to look at their money in the bank and trying to look at their dollars in their pocket and trying to sell their goods on the market. How does that affect them every day in their life as these two are slugging it out? Sure. And I think you bring up a great point. And let me just sort of track back to Biddle. I agree with you. I think Biddle frequently because Jackson is such a colorful character, because he does leave such a looming imprint on American history, Jackson ends up being the guy that everyone associates with the bank war. And Biddle is sort of, you know, the also ran, in large part because he ends up losing the bank war. But Biddle is very competent. He's a very, very dedicated public servant. And he honestly believes that if he can just sit down and talk with the president, they can work this out. You know, there's no hero in the story, but there are degrees of culpability. And Biddle's culpability is much lower than Jackson's because he is you know, right that the Bank of the United States is providing a number of very, very important services and Jackson doesn't have an alternative. You know, It's one of the things that we've sort of seen in our own political environment where refusing to compromise, where extreme ideological positions where total inflexibility polls very well. People like that. But then you get to Congress and you have one option, either violate everything you just told the voters you were going to do or dig your heels in and nothing gets done. And in a lot of ways, Jackson is sort of the embodiment of that. He gets up and he says, this is what I said I'm going to do, and I'm not deviating one single inch. And what's interesting about Jackson is he's got people even further to the right in terms of money. He's got guys like Thomas Hart Benton who are saying things like, not only do you got to get rid of the banks, you have to get rid of paper money. We need to go back to a gold standard. Jackson, in that sense, is almost like John Boehner. He said some pretty far out there things, but there are guys standing next to him who want to go even further. And here comes Biddle and says, yeah, but none of this makes any sense. Let's come up with a plan. You know, how can we fix the banks so that you're okay with it? And the answer, of course, is there's nothing you can do to fix the bank because we're just opposed to banks. So I think, you know, one of the cautionary elements of the bank war is a reminder of what happens when you enter a period of constant campaigning where ideology and ideological posturing 
are more valuable or are seen to be more valuable than political compromise. And throughout Jackson's first term, Biddle is constantly trying to appease the president. He says, look, you know, I, I can come up with ways to help you pay down the debt. To Jackson, that's just a clever way of creating money where none existed. And that only reinforces his belief that Biddle's doing something illegal, immoral, or unethical. And so every time that the Biddle goes to the president with the best of intentions, trying to protect the bank, trying to convince Jackson that it has a service to be rendered, he ultimately only convinces Jackson, you know, more that it needs to be destroyed. But in terms of the casualties of the bank war, again, I think we have to talk for just a moment about the world that the pre-Bank of the United States world that looked like. I mean, imagine if, you know, you had to carry gold everywhere with you to, you know, to Starbucks, to buy a coffee, to the video, you know, they don't have video stores anymore, the Apple store, you know, anywhere. I mean, you just need, you know, ounces and ounces or pounds and pounds of gold. It would be incredibly expensive. It would, it would retard any commerce because, you know, you're not carrying 20 or 30 pounds of gold around with you. And so what the Bank of the United States does is it allows the creation of a uniform paper currency that is as good in Philadelphia as it is in Atlanta, as it is in New Orleans, as it is in, you know, uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I mean, they really create a currency that can be spent anywhere at face value. In addition, the Bank of the United States provides a check on the state banks by every now and then going to the state banks and saying, look, we've got all your paper bills, we're turning them in for gold. And we, th we really think you're issuing too many of them, so we're going to clamp down by immediately returning dollar bills to you. In a lot of ways, it was driving the bad banks out of the market. And as a result, the currency was stable, the state banks were more stable, credit was more available. All of these were good things. You pull the bank out of the market, and what you end up with is the state banks just go nuts. They just start printing paper money. It's not worth anything. It's just flooding into the market. And then ultimately what happens is you have a credit crunch. Sound familiar? When speculation in, in real estate ends up creating a bubble that gets popped um, when the federal government says, ooh, we need to back up on this a little bit. And that's really the Panic of 1837. And the Panic of 1837 was the largest economic depression in American history up until the 1870s. This leaves an indelible impact on people. I mean, you know, you see these pictures from the Great Depression in the 1930s with 25% unemployment and soup lines and, you know, organized crime. It was exactly like that, except everybody looked like Martin Van Buren. <laughs> well, that's good that you brought us to Martin Van Buren. I want to interrupt him one more time and he'll politely sit there and brush his mutton chops. But just to prove that in the bank war, you really do have these parallels. It reminded me when you said about the CEO of GM saying what's good for America is good for General Motors and vice versa, is that's one thing that Biddle says. He says the best friends of the laboring classes are the banks. He's really looking at it as a force for good and thinks it can be one. And we see that today. That's one of the certainly things when people talk about President Obama, they say he has this sort of belief in the perfection of people that he coming from academia, that he thinks he can convince people to do things his way. And another program or another work will sort of get people to 
get rid of some of that chaos. And that's certainly a view that he had. Meanwhile, Jackson, everything is very personal, which brings us to this moment with Martin Van Buren, the little magician, as he was called. He serves as Jackson's vice president and secretary of state. I wanted you to describe the moment when the president tells him as he's laying there at death's door, literally at the White House, the bank, Mr. Van Buren, is trying to kill me, but I shall kill it. I mean, talk about personifying this fight. Oh, sure. And, you know, it's unfortunate that Martin Van Buren doesn't get more press in American history. I think in large part because he ends up being the guy that follows Andrew Jackson. He really is sort of like, you know, the guy that cleans up after the Rolling Stones. Well, I was going to say it's like opening up for them, but you're right. Yeah, yeah that's what, I mean, that, that's the reverse I always say about McKinley because McKinley comes before TR. Mm-hmm. So who would you really want to be the guy who is the opening act for Theodore Roosevelt? I don't <laughs> think so. Everyone's ears hurt at the end, but you're right. Yeah, he <laughs> cleans up after the Rolling Stones, does Martin Van Buren. And one thing, though, about him, if you have a chance, anybody listening, to go to Kinderhook, you can see his house and you really – feel like you're meeting Martin Van Buren. That's a great place to go up in New York State. Oh, yeah. And I'm a huge booster for Martin Van Buren because there is no savvier or, for my money, more important politician in 19th century America before the Civil War than Martin Van Buren. I mean, people talk about Jackson forming the Democratic Party, but in reality, the Democratic Party is an outgrowth of Martin Van Buren's political genius and his ability to find a guy in Jackson who could knit together this incredibly diverse and and really antagonistic coalition of northern working class white ethnics southern slave owners and a smattering of you know sort of western farmers i mean it's it's a really astonishing sort of thing that he's able to do and really what kills him is the fact that jackson leaves office in march of 1837 van buren replaces him and within a few months you have the panic of 1837 which is a generation defining economic collapse that just destroys his political career in a lot of ways. But uh, the the event that you're talking about, Van Buren had come into Jackson's cabinet. And uh, after Jackson's cabinet was shook up in 1831, Jackson ends up sending Van Buren to England as his minister to England. And Jackson gets himself into a fight with the Senate who refused to confirm Van Buren. And so Van Buren's over there being the minister to the court of St. James's. And he gets this letter that says, hey, we didn't confirm you. You need to come back. So he comes back to Washington in July. And you can just imagine this, this incredibly muggy, just awful July night in Washington, D.C. And he goes to the White House. And here's Andrew Jackson, who was never a well man. He's carrying bullets in him. He's coughing up all kinds of unattractive <laughs> things. I mean, this Jackson's a mess. You know, this picture on the bank war is probably about as good as Jackson looks. He's a mess. And Van Buren goes to him, and it's the summer of 1832. And the bank, the the what Congress has done, what the Senate has done is sent Jackson a bill to recharter the bank. John C. Calhoun, the vice president of the United States, and Henry Clay have gotten together and they said, what can we use as an issue to prevent Jackson from being reelected in the November elections? And they say, I know, we'll force him to make good on his rhetoric. He'll either veto the recharter of the Bank of the United States, in which case it'll come back to Congress and we'll overturn the veto and it'll be a body blow to his administration, or 
he'll sign the bill and you know we'll just go around the country saying oh what a fraud you can't trust him you might as well throw the bums out so here's van buren you know coming into jackson's bedroom and jackson's in bed hacking up god knows what and at one point you know he sits bolt upright and he says the bank mr van buren is trying to kill me but i'll kill it and it's sort of jackson in a nutshell you can sort of you know they're going to make a movie about andrew jackson's life that's going to star sean penn uh, it's coming out in 2018. I hope to God they do this moment. It's it's just such a perfect Hollywood thing. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's really what's going to get him the Oscar is going to be that scene right there. You know, you can imagine Van Buren, who is by nature very cautious and sort of, you know, sort of Jackson's opposite. He's short. He's stocky. He's a bit of an intellectual, you know, just dandy. Sort of, yeah, dandy. dandy they yeah, love to call you. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> you know, you can just imagine him being sort of taken aback by this. You know, if you were doing a preview for this book as if it was a movie, that would be the scene in the preview. Jackson's sitting bolt up. The bank's trying to kill me, but I'm going to kill it. And he does. Much, unfortunately, to the country's ultimate regret, I think. Maybe that's what Sean Penn was doing down there with El Chapo. I can't think of a worse <laughs> casting for Martin Van Buren, but they could wow. have maybe acted that out, but oh, that would be God. terrible. Running but lines with, with El Chapo. <laughs> but you're talking about Old Hickory killing the bank. One of the things he wants to do, and it just sounds frightening, and I think it really brings it home, is he says – we're going to yank all of the American money, you know, all the government's money out of the Bank of the United States. It it just sounds so apocalyptic that this is his idea. Yeah. Well, and you got to see the whole picture. Jackson comes into office in 1829, you know, and inaugurates the spoil system, which is the system where rather than hire people based on competence, we're going to use government offices to reward people. And so a lot of people who were sort of on the outskirts of the Jackson machine find out very quickly that the way to sort of get close to Jackson is by telling him things that confirm his prejudices. And so one of the ways to do that is to say, well, you know, there are these rumors that the local branch of the Bank of the United States was supporting John Quincy Adams or that the local branch of the Bank of the United States refused us a loan that we could have used in the campaign. So even from the moment Jackson comes into office, Biddle is getting letters from incoming members of the cabinet that say, you know, you really need to deal with this. You need to go investigate this. And Biddle, unfortunately, is incredibly arrogant about the whole thing. He says, all right, well, I'll go look at this. And he really kind of doesn't. You know, he basically sends back a very testy letter. He's like, I looked into it. Nothing happened. Leave it alone. And but for Jackson, he never forgets this. And so when you flash forward to the election of 1832, again, there are all these rumors that the Bank of the United States is interfering, that employees of the Bank of the United States are interfering, they're using the bank's money. And so after the inauguration in 1833, Jackson says, well, the hell with it. They're not going to have any federal money if this is what they're going to do. And so he orders the Secretary of the Treasury, a guy by the name of Louis McLean, to stop putting federal money into the Bank of the United States, but to continue writing checks against it. So the Bank of the United States would collect all of the federal government's money, whether it was in the form of tariffs or excise taxes. And then the, you know, the federal government would write checks against it like you would against your checking account. Well, what Jackson says is, stop routing that money into the Bank of the United States. We'll route it into state banks that are friendly to us, but I want you to keep writing checks against our accounts at the Bank of the United States with the idea that eventually 
the amount of federal money in the Bank of the United States, it'll be zero. He'll zero out the account. Well, McLean refuses. He says, no, 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 this is a bad idea. You already vetoed the recharter. Let's just let it lie there. And so, you know, basically Jackson fires him and replaces him with a guy by the name of William J. Duane, who was a Pennsylvanian Jacksonian. And I mentioned that he was a Pennsylvanian because the bank was headquartered in Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania Jacksonians were always a little weird about things like the bank. It's one of the reasons Pennsylvania is an incredibly important state in presidential elections, but the Pennsylvania Jacksonians, you know, run hot and cold with issues like the bank. And Duane ultimately refuses to remove the deposits. So Jackson fires him and turns to a guy by the name of Roger Taney, who most of your listeners will recognize as the chief justice who infamously penned the Dred Scott decision. And he ultimately spends just over eight months as secretary of the treasury and oversees the removal of the deposits which is an unmitigated disaster. The other part of the bank war that I wanted to mention or go back to rather is you said that Jackson won in the sense that he destroys the bank. Really, the country loses. Mm -hmm. And that's something about presidential leadership. We were talking there about intransigence in the two sides of Congress and then talking about the sort of, I guess the fun thing is people like to call it populism of a Bernie Sanders or a Donald Trump or a Ross Perot back in the 90s. But really, that's a president's job. And that's something, buddy, you want to choose. Somebody who, as little as you like to go talk to Congress, as they say Eisenhower's reaction was that, you know, he could shoot the Nazis, but he couldn't go to Congress and shoot them and get what he wanted. So that was more frustrating. That's a president's job is to go there, hopefully, and unfortunately, do this sort of glad-handing, backslapping. If you watch the State of the Union address, you'll see whether they're Democrats or Republicans, the president, you have all the members get there early as they can and try to stand right there in front of them and get shake hands with them, have that little bit of face time with him, because that's a big deal to be called to the White House. It's a big deal to have your friends made with you. And I think that that's something that's kind of underrated. And I think that it's something where, because President Obama came into office without a lot of that experience. That's something that both sides, his own party and the Republicans, have had a hard time with him. He doesn't want to hang out with them. And frankly, I don't blame him because I look at most of the people and maybe we, you don't want to hang out. You have successful presidents with that get their legislations passed, be it George W. Bush or Bill Clinton before him or Ronald Reagan, certainly, who would go and be very friendly and talk to you and try to, oh, hey, how are the kids kind of thing. So in light of the bank war and in light of this disaster that's really brought on by this intransigent personality of Jackson and by the confusion and not really accurately rating the situation like Biddle, we're in an election year, as I said. Give us some advice to choose a good candidate from those that are available without asking you to name names or anything. How do we choose somebody who, as voters, as citizens, will represent us well in a crisis like this with the bank war, if they're facing off against somebody like Biddle, because the bottom line is we want national prosperity. We don't really care if there's a bank. Stay out of our way. Mostly do your job and make sure that our money is worth what it should be. You know, I, I was fearing this question, and it's only because historians <laughs> make awful, awful fortune tellers. You know, look, to be and I can't believe you're getting me to say something positive about Jackson, but to be fair to Jackson, Jackson is very much a creature of his age. You know, he comes of age in a very partisan moment where 
the old political system is collapsing and there's this new hyper-partisan, you're with us or you're against us, patronage-driven system that in a lot of ways militates, I think, against across-the-aisle sorts of, you know, reaching across the aisle. So part of that is absolutely Andrew Jackson as a person. I mean, he was not given to compromise, but part of that is also the moment where he comes of age. And, you know, this is some another theme that's sort of run through American history. You know, on the one hand, we like compromise, as long as it's something we want to compromise about. If it's not something we want to compromise about, you know, all of our hero stories are about people who stood for their beliefs, come hell or high water. And I think in a culture where that's what we value, it makes it very hard to then turn around and say, you know what, you know, half a loaf is better than nothing. Ultimately, you know, I have my own political biases about, you know, what candidates we should pick. I think in an election cycle, compromise is a dirty word and you're not going to hear a lot about it. By the same token, once you get to the White House, it's inevitable that you compromise. Your political enemies are never going to give you credit for doing that. You know, the Democrats rarely gave George W. Bush credit for compromising. The Republicans rarely gave Bill Clinton credit for compromising. He was getting shot at by his own people, in a manner of speaking. So compromise, though we think we want it, polls very poorly. And I think that if we want to get serious about that, then we we have to start looking for candidates who are going to get up and say, you know what, I'm not going to dig my heels in about everything. But that doesn't make sense for the world's greatest stump speech. Yeah. Well, and if you ever want to really look at us, you said you didn't want to say anything positive about Jackson, but I now have you on record. So, which is good because <laughs> zombie Jackson won't rise from the ground in the hermitage and come and challenge you to a duel because I often fear zombie Jackson. That but, is something to worry about. No, no, I mean, spiders, <laughs> zombie Jackson, those are my top two fears, no doubt. Yep. Yep. Not necessarily in that order because they're together when you think about it. But, if you ever want to really look at our role in this as an American people and not to condescend to people in the 1830s or the general electorate is go look at when people are polled and people will be polled. Do you want a candidate who stands up for what they believe and doesn't surrender it? And you get 80 percent. And then you ask, do you want a candidate that compromises and you'll get like 78 percent? So there's some overlap. Oh, there. Sure. So and that's I think what I meant. I didn't want to put you on the spot oh, about no. a candidate, but a quality of a person where you say they're able to explain it. And it really is leadership. I mean, they call you leader of the country for a reason. It's not just because you want to sort of go through the motions here. It's important to have somebody who is capable of leading, and at least you hopefully will respect, even if they're going to have to. That was Reagan's phrase, I believe, that he was fond of. Go and get half the loaf and then come back later for the whole loaf, as long as we're getting some of the bread, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting you bring up Reagan, just as a closing thought. I, You know, of the two people in American history, I think I have the most in common are Martin Van Buren and George H.W. Bush, because, of course, they follow these two incredibly popular presidents and are left holding the bag for the scandals and the economic effects of their policies. And it ultimately deprives them of second terms in a lot of ways. I, I sometimes wonder if, you know, in his heart of hearts, if, you know, George H.W. Bush has a little portrait of Martin Van Buren that he carries around with him, because it's so it's so interesting that you have so many commonalities. You know? Well, when he won the presidency, he came and said it was 150 years since Martin Van Buren 
vice president to be elected president. It's been a long time, Marty. I don't know if you remember that, but that <laughs> was one of know. oh, it was awesome. My favorite moment of the of the election <laughs> night. I think it was pretty awesome. Yeah, wow. he definitely did remember. In fact, I believe that he calls. No, no, I'm sorry. He calls George W. Bush Quincy. So he it's does. Another little, yeah. Well, I guess presidential. Maybe, maybe when H.W. dies, we'll find that he has Martin Van Buren tattooed on his ass. I mean, that yeah. that would be the greatest thing in the world, wouldn't it? <laughs> but I think Martin Van Buren deserves a better body part than me, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. But on that note, I will say Paul Cahan, author of The Bank War, whose next book apparently is going to be on presidential rumps and which other president they should have <laughs> tattooed on there. I am not getting anywhere near Andrew Jackson's rump with a Probably stylus a or... <laughs> tattoo or anything. He's one tough customer. Nicholas Biddle probably would talk through the whole thing and try to talk me out of it. I can do him. You can do Jackson. But (laughs) in any case, thank you so much for joining me today and shedding light on a battle that played out two centuries ago, but still touches our lives in 2016. If you want to get an idea of where this whole financial behemoth that we have today, known as the Federal Reserve, came from, go ahead and pick up the bank war. Thank you very much. The book is The Bank War, Andrew Jackson, Nicholas Biddle, and the Fight for American Finance. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase the book at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even bookmark our URL for all your online purchases. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of everything you buy at no additional cost to you. Once again, thanks to Paul Cahan for joining us and for sharing the story of a fight over financial policy that still resonates today. Please remember to follow today's guest on Twitter at Paul underscore Cahan and visit his website, paulcahan.com. And you can let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or at facebook.com slash history author. Well, that's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next week for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please leave us a review. So, until next Monday morning, thanks so much for listening, and happy reading. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.